So I've been the pastor of this church long enough to know my way around pretty well. I've been in all the buildings. I kind of know where all the secret places are. And it really is pretty interesting. I think there are probably a few things you all don't know about our, our physical spaces. For example, just back here in the green room, there's a metal staircase that leads up onto the roof of the Lee Fellowship Hall. And I will neither confirm or deny whether I've been on that roof before. Uh, there's also over here in this building, there's about a four foot ledge that is outside of my office window. I can crawl out my window onto this ledge. I think originally in the church plans, there was supposed to be a balcony out there uh, that just never got built. So I'm still waiting for that to happen. But yes, it does lead around to Dr. Thorpe's window, which a few times I've crawled out my window while he's been working at his desk and scared the daylights out of him banging on the window. And he really, it was, uh, it was all kinds of fun. Uh, right up here in the, in the, uh, and please don't get up you in, in the balcony and try to find this, but there is a crawl space uh, in the balcony that is very narrow that you with a ladder in it and you can crawl up into the base of our steeple. Uh, my wife and three children have been up there. I have chosen not uh, to do that. I have a little claustrophobia issue. And then over in Allen Yale Hall, there's a little, uh, there's a little walkway that is uh, guarded by uh, iron bars, kind of gates on both sides. You, you go out of the Reformation Chapel and you go over this little walkway into Allen Yow Hall and then there's a little garden there that the, the Yow class did. So one day, I Saturday, it's about two o'clock in the afternoon, I do a wedding, lovely springtime wedding. It's over, wedding party leaves. I go out to my office, get ready for the next day. I realize I've left my Bible. In the, in the chapel. And so I go back to the chapel. I walk down the driveway right here, go in the chapel door, get my Bible off the pulpit desk. And then I think to myself, I'll just, I'll just go through that hallway into Allen Yow Hall to get back to my office. It'll be a little shortcut. And so I go out the chapel door into the little gated walkway. Here's the garden on my right. And I let go of the chapel door. And before I grab the Allen Yow Hall door, I realize I don't have my keys or my cell phone. The chapel door is locked and Alan Yow Hall is locked and now I am literally in jail. And, and I, there, there's, there's no one there. And I confess to some initial panic. I was like a guy in jail who grabbed the bars and started going, hey, is anybody out there? I need help, right? I'm shaking the bars, crickets, nobody's there. And so then I'm thinking to myself, you know, how long can a man live with no food or water? Right, And I knew people would be there by like six o'clock in the morning, but could I live that long? Am I gonna spend the night? What is gonna happen? And, and then, then I was filled with a sense of peace because I figured out there are all kinds of options for, for, my, for my rescue, right? I mean, downtown's pretty busy at night. There was gonna be a policeman wander by. There could be a homeless person who could come by and I could tell them to go get help. Maybe the Methodist church had a Saturday night service. Maybe there was something going on, Dr. Phillips. Somebody was gonna come by and sure enough, about two hours later, our own security guard was walking the perimeter and saw me and, and let me out. So thank you for your generosity that pays for a security guard to be here all day on Saturday. So I was... I was rescued from my imprisonment. Now, surely I'm not the only one who's ever been in a situation where we realize that I, I am, I'm in a, a, a circumstance that unless someone else comes to help me, I'm not getting out of it. Where you realize you're stuck, you're trapped. Maybe you got stuck in an elevator. That's happened to me too, right? You're not getting out unless somebody comes to help you. Or, or maybe it was in your marriage 
where you realize the two of you were at an impasse and you were not gonna get over the impasse unless a third party came and helped you see it in a different way. Maybe you got into a financial jam. Maybe you got out over your skis in terms of your indebtedness and unless somebody else came and invested money in your company, you were not gonna get out of the situation you're in. But regardless, it is stressful when you realize I'm stuck. I can't get out of here. Well, guess what, people? We are all dealing with those same feelings on a much deeper spiritual level because as we look at our lives today, as I prayed, all of us can see the sickness and the emptiness and the darkness that exists in our world today. And you look at everything that's transpired in the last year all over the map, but then that same sense of emptiness, of darkness, can start to fill our souls where we can't seem to find an answer and we feel trapped and stuck in a life that we didn't think we were gonna have. And we find ourselves just like me in that walkway shaking the bars. We wanna cry out, how am I gonna get out of this situation? Because we've been in it long enough to know we can't get out of it ourselves. And lo and behold, guess what happens? As we're saying, who is gonna come help me? Oh, the culture comes and says, have I got some options for you? Just try this or try that. Read this, read that, follow this guy, follow that girl. Buy this, buy that, do this, do that. The list goes on forever. The options are endless. And that's what gets us back into our sermon series today. As I alluded to in the baptism, we're in this counterculture series. The culture is shaping us. The culture is teaching and training you. And if that's the case, if the culture is giving you its answers to your questions, then the church has a responsibility to counter that. And oftentimes we use catechism or catechesis to teach us. It's a series of questions and answers. And so we want to offer a counter catechesis to what the culture is teaching you. And so we've looked since January at some of the deeper questions of our lives. The first one, what's my only hope in life and in death? As we stare at death, what's my only hope? We looked at who is God? We looked at why did God make us? And then last Sunday, Dr. Thorpe did a great job. After Easter, on Easter morning, I told you, the work of God in Christ for our salvation is finished. We don't have to do anything else. So then Case looked at question 15 last week out of the New City Catechism. Again, that's where we're getting our questions and our answers. New City Catechism by, by Tim Keller. Then if God's already finished the work, then what's the purpose of the law? What do we need the law, the moral law and the commandments of the Old Testament for answer? Because they show us to ourselves. They help us realize and understand that we need someone to come save us. From the situation that we're in, they show us our need for a redeemer, which gets us today to question 20. I know we've already read it and looked at it. We're gonna do it one more time. Question 20. Okay, question 20 is who is the redeemer? Bingo, and the answer, say it with me. The only redeemer 
is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. That comes right out of 1 Timothy 2.5, which says, for there is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so ultimately the question that every human heart will ask is who is going to help me make sense of the life that I am in? Or in the words of Andrew Del Banco, who's a sociology professor at Columbia University, who will deliver me from the melancholy suspicion that I live in a world without meaning? See, I think that's what nags in the back of every human mind. What if this doesn't mean anything? What if there's no purpose to my existence? That friends is a very, very scary thought and it nags us. What's the answer to that question? If this doesn't mean anything, then who's gonna come and save and rescue me? And that's where the gospel comes and brings us a singular answer. Number one, there's only one. There's only one redeemer. There's only one savior. This is not like you going to the grocery store to buy breakfast cereal and there are 79 options, right? There's only one answer. There's only one source. The culture says, who's gonna rescue you? All kinds of options. Christianity comes and says there's ones. The catechism answer says, the only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about that, that's extraordinary good news because it simplifies your life. It allows you to know, I don't have to chase a whole multitude of things. I I just have to pursue one thing. There's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one Redeemer. In addition, there's only one God. The Redeemer that is alone going to be our Savior is the incarnate form of the one true living God given to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit continues to be and abide with us today from the day of Pentecost. So there's just one God revealed as Redeemer, given presently as the Holy Spirit, which of course leads to some backlash, does it not? There are people the world over who look at Christianity and they say, you arrogant Christians, how is it that you think that you have cornered the market on truth and that your God is the only one and the rest of ours are wrong? You know, and that's kind of, that's a a fair question. There are, and I I did a little research on this. There are actually 4,300 religions in the world. 4,300, give or take. The 12 most populous are Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Taoism, Judaism, Confucianism, Baha'i, Shinto, Jainism, and Zoroastrianism. All right, so that's a whole bunch of gods, people. How is it that you and I can say ours is the only one? How is it that out of 4,300 possibilities, Christians have the audacity to say, there's just one and it's ours. We're right and you guys are not. The answer is an intellectual one. And it's simply this, it's logic. Two contradictory truths 
cannot both be true at the same time. Christianity is the only religious tradition in the world that allows for God to come down in human flesh to incarnate himself and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We recognize under the law, the burden of the law, we realize I can't keep this. I can't make myself good enough. But every other world religion continues down that path. I said on Easter, the dying words of Buddha, strive without ceasing. Buddhism says you must follow the eightfold path. Islam says you must achieve the five pillars. Hinduism says you must achieve a state of dharma, which in effect is perfect morality. Christianity says instead of striving, stop doing anything because you can't do it. The burden crushes you. God instead has done it for you. No other religion in the world believes that. And what's more, secondly, the reason we believe it's true is because if Christianity is just one religion among many that will get you to God, then why does Jesus die? If 4,299 are going to achieve the purpose of reconciling you to the Father, then Jesus never dies because it wasn't necessary. But historically, we know that he did. Therefore, either Christianity is right and you and I have the beauty and the blessing of going to heaven and we're all, or we're all fools and we ought to go home. But there's not an option for Jesus being one way among many because then your theology falls apart because God is now murderous when he kills his son for no reason. So either Jesus is the only one or he's no one, but there's nothing in between. So Christian theology doesn't allow for a middle ground, which is a wonderful differentiator between Christianity and the rest of the world. It is a wonderful form of theological simplicity that allows us to pursue only one God. There's just one, one redeemer, one answer, one savior for your life. Then secondly, apparently we need a mediator. Now, all of us, I think, know what mediators are. A definition is a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement, a go-between. First Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator between God and men. So what do mediators do? You see mediators do work all the time in marriage situations, trying to solve a conflict between husband and wife. Mediators work between labor unions and the owners of those businesses, between sports teams and sports owners. We see mediators at work all the time. But essentially what Paul is saying to us in this is we have a conflict between ourselves and God and someone's gonna have to mediate it. There's a big gap that has been created by our intractable sin issue that our choices, our behavior, our rebellion, our desire to build our own kingdom instead of the kingdom of God has created a gap. And the cultural answer to that is, well, you can build something that will bridge the gap. You can do something. And so we're constantly what? Working, doing, trying, achieving, succeeding, pursuing, serving, all to try to build some kind of a contraption that can cover that gap, but there's no way we can do enough. And so our catechism answer says, God in Christ gave us the one mediator. God became man and bore the penalty himself. 
So God, in his justice, demands that sin be answered. But then he does the beautiful, gracious thing in providing in himself the answer to the very thing he demands. So he humbles himself. He suffers. He dies. Friends, again, in terms of differentiating Christianity from every other religious tradition in the world, that is a scandalous idea to every other one. There's not a single one that allows God to be humble. No other religion allows God to suffer. No other religion allows God to become like the creature. What God, what self-respecting God would ever do that? That is scandalous. And it was just as scandalous in the time of Jesus, which is why the disciples couldn't wrap their brain around it. They were expecting an earthly king, not this humble, self-sacrificial God who mediates and fills the gap with himself. See, Jesus is the only one who qualified to be the mediator. Who would be the best mediator between God and man? If you wanna try to help solve a conflict between two countries, the best mediator is gonna be somebody with dual citizenship. Who's gonna solve a conflict between two people groups? It's gonna be someone who's biracial. Who's gonna be the best person to host the party for the annual FSU Florida football game? It's somebody with dual degrees, right? So who's gonna be the best mediator? It's the God-man, fully human and fully divine. The God-man Jesus, N.T. Wright says it this way. The myth of progress, and let me just explain what that is. The myth of progress says this, that man, that we human beings have the capacity to lift ourselves, to gradually ascend to a place where we can solve our own problems. That's the myth of progress. We can take care of ourselves, we can handle it. But N.T. Wright says the myth of progress fails because it doesn't in fact work, because it would never solve evil retrospectively and because it underestimates the nature and power of evil itself and fails to see the very importance of the cross, which is God's no to evil. Again, parenthetically, the myth of progress doesn't say anything about evil. It doesn't help explain to you all the emptiness and the problems and the sickness that you see in the world. It ignores that and just said, well, stop thinking about that. We can fix this ourselves. It doesn't answer the problem of evil. But the cross then opens the door to God's yes to creation. Only in the Christian story do we find any sense that the problems of the world are solved, not by a straightforward upward movement into the light, but by the creator God going down into the dark to rescue humankind and the world from its plight. This is our mediator. This is the one who bridges the gap, not that we are on this path of ascendancy toward the light because of what we're doing and achieving. But Christianity instead says God descends into the darkness and in doing so takes us in his hands as by his work, he ascends to the light and we are with him. Is he the one today who is your Savior, there's one Redeemer, there's one God, 
There's one mediator. It's beautifully simple in what it affords us in this life, but it also thirdly has dramatic implications for how you live and for your sense of well-being and understanding of who you are. God has said to us that we are his creatures, that he created us to worship him and be in relationship with him. And as we are, we will find and discover our true identity as his children, as his beloved sons and daughters. And then he says, the path to that life is there's only one path and it's the path of Jesus. So the more we walk that path, the more we find life and the more we choose not to follow that path, the more we linger in darkness. Craig Barnes, who is the president of Princeton Seminary, and it is so very sad that this is the first time I have ever quoted anyone from Princeton Seminary and Case Thorpe is not here to hear it, but perhaps he's listening online. But Craig Barnes, the president of Princeton said this, everyone is struggling with identity issues these days because we now assume that identity is something we construct for ourselves. We build our identity by our choices. Such a strange idea would never have occurred to previous generations who accepted identity as an inheritance from the family that told them who they were and what they were gonna do. When a favorite uncle asked a child, what do you wanna be when you grow up? The child was not expected to say, I wanna be happy. It was about what they would do. And then here's the key sentence. From the time we got off that uncle's knee, we were bombarded with more choices than any generation has ever faced. Understanding the pursuit of fulfillment as our holy grail. So we spend an enormous amount of time making choices about relationships, children, communities, churches, houses, and other possessions, believing we will eventually construct an identity we find fulfilling. We're constantly making choices. We're constantly trying to change our circumstances to give ourselves the life we want when we need to understand that there's only one way to that life. And it's not in circumstances, it's not in our context, it's in a person. It's in the person of Jesus. But instead, what are, what are we doing? We, we get to college, we choose a, a university and we go, well, I, I don't really like it. So then we choose another one. We go somewhere else and we go, well, I still don't like it. Must be my major. So we change our major, we do something else. And then we get a job and we go, well, I'm not happy. This really isn't fulfilling. And so we think, well, I'll get another job in this company. And then we find another company. Then we find another career and we're still not happy. We do the same thing in marriage. We get married and we think, well, this is my best shot at happiness. And then seven to 10 years later, we think, well, this really isn't working for me. So we choose another. And another, we're constantly making choices to construct a life that we think is gonna give us what we want when all along God has said, the answer, the solution is not in the things of the world and it's not in changing your context. It is like the second thief on the cross who essentially said to Jesus, I'll keep my circumstances if I can have you. I'll take my suffering. I'll even take my death if I can have you. Barnes goes on to say, the drama, this is the drama of what happens when we do and do not accept our created identity as males and females, made in the image of God for communion with the creator. This means that all things derive their existence from God. So when we seek a different identity derived from anything other than God, we don't actually become different, but return to the nothingness we were before God created our lives. So the more you continue to pursue this belief that by your choices and your circumstances and what you're building, 
that you can somehow find the path. The more you do that, it actually doesn't lead you to the light. It leads you to the darkness. It leads you not closer to God, but away from God. The only answer is to realize there's one, one savior, one redeemer, one answer, one solution, one peace, one God. I'll close with this. New Year's Day, 1971, the Tournament of Roses Parade in Southern California is the Grand Marshal is Billy Graham. Imagine that a today, a Christian leader being the Grand Marshal for a secular parade probably wouldn't happen. But instead of being excited about this, Graham later wrote, I have seldom had such mixed emotions as I did that day. I knew that decadence had settled in. As I savored grandeur of this great nation, I also sensed its sickness, but I was watching the horizon for a cloud of impending revival to restore America's spiritual greatness. And he said, as he started to snake his way along the parade route, he saw all these different organizations holding up signs and declaring kind of who they were and come join us. But he said, then hundreds of college students kept running up to his car going like this and shouting one way, one way, one way. And he said in that moment that he and his fellow leaders became deeply aware of a new spiritual revival that would bring restoration to our country. The one way movement became the Jesus movement, which gave birth to Campus Crusade for Christ, which arguably changed not only our country, but is continuing to change our world for Christ. I remember as an eight-year-old people running around Dallas going one way, one way. And I'd be in the back seat of my mother's Ford Country Star station wagon going, yeah, one way. Friends, remember this. In all of our confusion and all of our internal conflict and all of our dividedness, remember the Bible says you can't serve two masters. There's just one one redeemer, one savior, one Lord, and it's Jesus. May we follow him this day. Let's pray.